Marshall will be teaching on the passage. That's uh, selected verses from Joshua 3 and 4 that Allie just read. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to have that open in front of you, actually, because uh, we're looking at a lot of verses in there, and so, uh, but also you can just have your bulletin in front of you. I got a more happy announcement real quickly, and that is uh, one of the great privileges of our church, and I really believe something that God has called us particularly to do and to be, is to be a sending church. And I think this is from God because I certainly didn't want this to happen because what happens in our church is these great people come and then we get to send them out. And a little over a month we will celebrate and welcome back Derek and McKinney Rishmaui who are serving as campus pastors on the West Coast. Uh, later this May, some of us will go to Amsterdam to visit our partners, Mario and Elsbeth uh, Tafner, who live in Amsterdam, uh, who are part of our church and we have sent out. There's another young woman that we sent out about five years ago who is a member of our church for several years named Laura Ball. And Laura serves in the Ukraine. As you've been following the news, if you pay any attention to the news right now, you know that Ukraine is a, uh, there's a lot of things happening in Ukraine. And so uh, a lot of us have been concerned about uh, Laura and wanted to know how she was. And she sent out an email this week that I loved because after really cogently actually explaining the geopolitical situation and how we got to where we are, what's going on in that part of the world. Uh, she said, there's one more question that I've received a lot, and that is, what are you, Laura, going to do? And I'm quoting from her email. She, she said, the answer is this, keep serving in Ukraine. Those of us who are monitoring the situation, and while we will always consider all scenarios and safety, we are not overly anxious. I personally have no plans to evacuate. Now, I love this about Laura because I sent her an email earlier in the week. I was like, can we buy you a plane ticket? You know, can we find you a safe place to stay in America? Can we bring, you know, you're our missionary. We've sent out. Can you, do we need to save? And she's like, no, I got this. I trust my God, and I want to stay and serve the Ukrainians. It's just a model and an inspiration uh, to us, even as we'll talk about monuments in just a moment. So I'm going to pray for Laura, and I'm going to pray for the passage uh, right now. So would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for um, people like Laura Ball, who we had the privilege to know and to send out. We thank you for her current safety. We pray for her future safety. But more importantly, God, we pray that you would continue to give her uh, a great faith, a faith that trusts you, that looks to you, and is an inspiration even to those of us uh, back here in the United States. Be with her. Be with all those. We also pray for our mission partner in Haiti. Uh, all the terrible things that have happened in Haiti in the last year, over the last centuries, frankly. Pray for Donnie St. Germain, pray for ESMI, uh, pray for our mission partners in Haiti and in Ukraine. Lord, now as we come to draw our attention to this text, to Joshua 3 and 4, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. If you've listened to me preach, <coughs> excuse me, for any length of time, uh, you would probably know that I love history. <sighs> Hold on. <clears throat> um, shouldn't have drank the water in the first place. And I was a history major in college, and I love history. I still read history. I'm reading a real interesting book right now um, about history. And because I love history, when I travel, I love to see historical sites, visit museums, memorials, and even monuments. And the thing about the best monuments, the thing about the best monuments is they don't just teach you something about the past. The best monuments don't just remind you about something that has happened. The best monuments, they make you want to do something. They cause you to feel something that compels you to be a different person because you've seen that monument and been reminded from something in the past. You want to be a different person because of what you've seen. There's only one monument that I can ever remember having my picture taken in front of. And uh, that is a monument in Oxford, England on a street 
uh, there is an X in the middle of the street, built of bricks. There's just a little X in the street, and I have a picture of myself standing in front of it. And that X in Oxford, England, in the street, commemorates the spot where in October of 1555, two men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were burned at the stake for their faith in Christ, for their preaching of Christ. They were burned at the stake because they were preachers of Jesus. I'll quote you what Hugh Latimer reportedly said that day. He said, he said to his friend Nicholas Ridley, he said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For this day we will light a flame in England by God's grace that will never be put out. He talked about this flame being lit as he is literally being consumed, being consumed by the flames. And as a young aspiring preacher in my mid-twenties, I remember standing there and thinking, My God, my God, these men believe something. They preached something because they believed it, and they gave their life. It's a monument that didn't just remind me of something that happened, but made me want to live different, to be different. Well, today uh, we, we've been studying the book of Joshua for a few weeks. The Joshua is the sixth book in the Jewish scriptures in the Christian Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. And we're actually rewinding a bit. Last week, Nick led us through Joshua chapter 5. And this week, we're going to kind of sprint through Joshua's 3 and 4. And this story contains a literal monument, a pile of stones, which will demonstrate the value of remembering what God has done, but also realizing that memory is not for memory's sake, but what it's about compelling us to do, how we're called to live and to move forward. Good monuments aren't about the past. Good monuments are about the future, okay? So what I want us to see this morning are three things. First, I want to see an important moment. I want us to see serious commands. And then third, a vital monument. But first, an important uh, moment. Now, a little uh, context here. Joshua chapter 1 and 2, the people have come out of Egypt. Uh, Moses, the great leader, is dead. And Joshua has been installed as the new leader, okay? And so they are literally, to quote one of my favorite hymns, they are on Jordan's stormy banks. And they are on the east bank of the Jordan River. And they are looking to the west, which is the land of promise. They're on the east bank looking to the land of promise. And there's several things that are happening in this very important moment. First of all, they're on the verge of ending 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. To remind you of the story of the Exodus, the people come out by the plagues, they cross the Red Sea, the people of Israel come out of Egypt in this great event, and they get to the cusp very quickly of the promised land. But because of their disobedience, because of their lack of belief, they don't go into the land of promise. And God punishes their disobedience, he punishes their disbelief by sending them to basically wander in the wilderness, basically walk in circles for 40 years. So they've been walking in circles for 40 years as a whole nation. Can you imagine the frustration? But here they are on the verge, treading the verge of Jordan, and they're about to cross over. They can see that land of promise, 40 years of wandering. But it's not just 40 years of wandering. This is also, they have been waiting for 400 plus years, probably 500 years for a promise of God to be fulfilled. Because all the way back at the very beginning of the story, the very first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, God promised to the forebear, the patriarch of all the nation of Israel, a man named Abram. This is what God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. God said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring, these people, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That's a reference to Egypt. Verse 14, but I, God, will bring judgment on that nation of Egypt that they serve. That's the plagues, the exodus, the Red Sea. And then verse 16, and they shall come back here. 
to the land of promise in the fourth generation. So these people treading the verge of Jordan, they've been wandering for 40 years, waiting, but they've also been waiting for probably 500 years for this promise to come true. This is a fraught moment, an auspicious moment, an important moment, treading the verge of Jordan. Now, a couple things about the river. The river has since been dammed, but scholars and geologists believe that at the time of this story in Joshua 3 and 4, the uh, river would have been 90 to 100 feet broad and 3 to 12 feet deep, depending on where you were. The current would have been strong because there's a steep drop in elevation as you go from north to south. The river travels from north to south. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 15, and chapter 4, verse 18 highlight that at the time of this story was the flood season. The water was raging. In other words, this is not the dry season where it's just kind of a trickle, right? This is the least likely time to cross the Jordan River, which actually seems to kind of fit God's character. He seems to like to do things that are the least likely, okay? The water is raging. Now, I should also note, geologically, the Jordan River is basically on top of tectonic plates, and earthquakes are not unheard of. In fact, there's evidence of earthquakes that have stopped the flow of the Jordan River for from 10 to 24 hours. It's happened in 1267, 1906, 1927, where the, an earthquake basically stops the flow of the river for a period of time. Now, whether this was a direct miracle that God just stopped it or there's a secondary miracle through an earthquake, the point is this. God did it. It's not super important how it happened. The point is that God was in control. He stopped the water. Okay, so how did he do it? Verse 16, which I didn't print for you, unfortunately. This is what verse 16 of chapter 3 says. The waters coming down from above, from the north, they stood and they rose up in a heap. The water just stopped. Or look with me at verse 17, which I did print. Now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So God stops the water flow, and the people cross over. They pass over. Now, as they do so, they do this odd thing. A one representative from each of the 12 tribes is commanded to pick up a stone and to carry it with them where they form a, a, an altar, a, a, a stone of memorial, a monument on the far side. If you look at the cover of your bulletin, uh, one of our artists, Ellen Bender, a member of our community, this is her rendering of these 12 stones, this stones of remembrance. One stone for each tribe of Israel. Okay? So, that's all to say this is an important moment. Okay? They're treading, I mean, 40 years of wandering, 500 years of waiting, and now they're about to cross over into, and they in fact do cross over. Now, amidst this important moment, though, there are two very serious commands that God, through Joshua, gives to the people. And so I want us to look at these two serious commands. The first is this. To consecrate yourself. Look with me at verse 5 of chapter 3. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now consecrate could also be translated sanctify. uh, Maybe easier to understand to make holy. Now, we have an idea from other passages in the Jewish scripture what this means in Exodus 19, in Numbers 11, Joshua 7, 1 Samuel 16. The same language is used. Consecrate yourself. Sanctify yourself. And it's it's often done when God is about to reveal himself in a particularly powerful way. Now, to consecrate yourself would have meant washing your clothes, confessing your sins, refraining from sexual relations. Now, here's the point. That's a lot of backstory. This preparation 
was not, it was not a precondition of God doing this, of doing this miracle. All right? This preparation was so that the people would recognize that God was going to do this work, and it's a big deal, which is to say that the consecration was to awaken people, to open their eyes to see that this is a work of God, okay? Recognizing that this is God's work, which is to say consecration is not like cleaning your room so your mom will be happy. Consecration is like cleaning your glasses so that you can see more clearly, right? Consecration, in other words, is not about making God do something. It's about awakening in us the ability to see that God is at work. One of the things I like to say and think about a lot is that God is at work all the time. I don't know what you were doing at 7 a.m. this morning or at 10 p.m. last night or at 5 p.m. on Friday, but I do know this, whatever it was, whether you were in a fight with your spouse, you had a great moment, whatever was happening, God was at work in that moment. God was at work in that moment. And consecration, at some level, is opening our eyes, cleaning the glasses to see that God is at work at all times, in all places. So when we consecrate ourselves, what we're really doing is we're creating an attitude of expectation that God is at work. One of the best ways to consecrate yourself, frankly, is to pray, to cultivate a lifestyle of prayer. Because when you pray, you remind yourself of what God has done, and you create the expectation that he will continue to do that. There's this little prayer meeting that started in our church at Tuesdays at 12 o'clock right here. Uh, there was five of us this week, and it's become a sweet time for us to pray, and not just to pray together, but there's this expectation building that God is at work, and God will be doing and is doing something to see. So first, consecrate yourself, the first serious command. The second serious command is to behold. Okay, look with me, chapter uh, 3, verses 10 and 11. I won't read all of 10, but, and Joshua said, here is how you will know that the living God is among you, and he lists all the people they're going to conquer. And then verse 11, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, behold is just a way of saying, look, look, pay attention, look. It's a command, look. And what does he say to look at? It's kind of weird. He says, look at the Ark of the Covenant. Look at the Ark of the Covenant. Now, when you think about the Ark of the Covenant, first of all, get Indiana Jones out of your mind for just a moment, okay? Uh, Because the Ark of the Covenant was this gold box that was four feet by two feet by two feet. It was the throne of God, the actual presence of God on earth. As the great Old Testament scholar Gerard Van Rad says, wherever the Ark is, God is present, And Joshua is saying, look at it. Look at the ark. Okay, because what's going to happen is the ark is actually going to lead the people across into enemy territory. Think about this. They are about to make a hostile invasion. They're about to invade the promised land, to conquer it. And who do you think they would send first? The chariots? The archers? The, the, The swordsmen? The mighty warriors? No. Who goes first? The ark of the covenant goes first, which is to say... God goes first. God meets the obstacles and the problems before the Israelites do. The warrior God leads the warrior priest, leads the way. So Joshua is saying the way you can know that we'll be successful is God's going with us and God is going first. So behold, do you have eyes to see that God is going first? 
And you're like, man, we don't have an ark, Marshall. This is somewhat interesting, but like we don't have an ark. I don't get it. This week I was traveling uh, in uh, Nashville. I was actually at a youth pastor's conference recruiting for our youth pastor position. And I was there to recruit, but I did sit in on one or two of the sessions. And one of the sessions I sat in, uh, one of the teaching sessions, was by a man named Sam Alberry. A great talk he gave called, I wish all our teenagers could hear it, The Gospel is Good News for Your Body. It was so good. The Gospel is Good News for Your Body. And one of the points he made was that the presence of God, the presence of God is no longer in an ark, And it is no longer in a temple, a building in Jerusalem. The presence of God is now within us, dwelling, if you were in Christ, dwelling within you. And he talked, Sam did, about being at a conference himself in Jerusalem. He talked about going to a conference for Jerusalem. He was hearing all the talks, but he wanted to spend some time as a tourist. And if you're a tourist in Jerusalem, one thing you do, I've never been, but one thing apparently you do is you go to the Wailing Wall. You've seen the pictures, right? The former exterior wall of the temple. And you go and you see the people praying and all the bowing and all this. And he said, I went to the Wailing Wall and I did the prayer thing. But he said, but as I'm praying there at the Wailing Wall, I had this realization that I, Sam Albury, am more the temple of the living God than this building. He said it felt presumptuous, but it is true. Because the reality is, is if you are in Christ, your body is God's address on earth. Your body is God's address on earth. Behold, the spirit of the living God is within you. He goes before And so this this behold, to see that God is not just in an ark in front of you, but God is within you. Whatever it is you're facing, whatever you're going into at Monday morning at 8 o'clock, whatever it is you're going to face this evening, God is there. He is dwelling within you. And the more we believe that and behold that, it gives us courage to live by faith. Whether we're crossing a river, staying in Ukraine, or whatever obstacle is in front of you. So that's some serious commands. Okay, consecrate, behold. I mean, you're like, Marshall, I just want to go see Patrick Mahomes and Joe Burrow. Come on. If you don't know what that is, ask a middle-aged man (laughs) what I'm talking about. But because I have good news from you. Because these serious commands lead us to the most important point of this passage and of this section of Scripture, and that is this vital monument. We've seen the important moment, we've seen the serious commands, but friends, let's look at this vital, which is to say vital means life-giving, a life-giving monument. Because as they cross the river, as I said, they pick up stones they do from the river, one for each of the twelve tribes. They set them up in a pile. It appears from verse 9 of chapter 4 that they first set up the pile in the middle of the river. And then in verse 20 of chapter 4 that they move them outside the river on the banks to a place called Gilgal on the western western bank of the Jordan River. Chapter 4 verse 7 calls them memorial stones. And then in verses 19 to 24 of chapter 4, Joshua preaches preaches this little sermon about the memorial, about these memorial of stones, okay? And here, let me paraphrase it for you. He basically says, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? What, do these, what does this monument mean? He says, you tell them this. This is a reminder that God led us over. He stopped the water. He led the people of Israel through the Jordan River. And this is so that you might know that God is powerful and that you would fear him. That's his outline. Remind, that, that's, his, that's his sermon. Remember, this is what God did. And because of that, remember that God is powerful and we are called to, for, uh, to remember to fear God. Now, remembering, friends, is a big deal in the Scriptures. 
Old Testament scholar from the last century said this, much of what the Bible demands can be completed in one imperative. Remember. Remember matters. Psalm 105 says, remember the wondrous works the Lord has done. Psalm 77 says, remember the deeds of the Lord. And very famously, Jesus on the last night of his life says, do this in remembrance of me. You see, friends, the Bible talks so much and it's so important to remember because it is so easy to forget. In fact, I would say that the greatest enemy to faith may be forgetfulness. Ralph Davis says this, just as in marriage, the real threat may not be infidelity. In most marriages, the real threat may not be infidelity, but the slow process of forgetting, failing to remember the preciousness of the other person. Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness breeds worry. We don't remember that God is good. Forgetfulness breeds fear. We don't remember that God is powerful. Forgetfulness breeds resentment and divisiveness. We think we have to be in control of how other people act. And maybe above all, forgetfulness breeds hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness. The most evocative passage in Scripture for me about remembering and forgetting is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Deuteronomy 4.9 says this. This is Moses, Joshua's predecessor, and he preaches this way. He says, only take care. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. What Moses is saying, he's saying it's so easy. You can even forget the things that you've seen. You see, a memory is not necessarily remembering. Remembering is taking something and actively applying it to our hearts. I mean, how many people do you know, maybe this is you, whose heart for the gospel and for God has grown cold because we have failed to actively remember. We failed to remember and our hearts grow cold. So how does memory work? This is important, okay? Just think about the structure of this story. How does memory work? This monument of stones is not at the end of Joshua after they've finished the conquest and apportioned the land. Think about this. This monument is at the very beginning of the story. It's the beginning of the book. You see, because remember, the best monuments are not about the past. The best monuments are about compelling us and propelling us into the future. And this monument here in Joshua chapter 4 is meant to remind the Israelites of God's faithfulness so that they can move forward in faith of what God will do among them. These stones are a reminder that if God can tame a river, he can give us this land. If God can stop this water, he can stop a charging Canaanite. If God can do this, he can give us this land. There's a theological logic to this, right? Because God has done this, therefore we can trust him. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. This is the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, he says this, if God, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Translation, if God has given his son, how will he not graciously give us all things before us? Ralph Davis says it this way, the rescue at the Red Sea, 
the crossing of the Jordan River, and the death and resurrection of Jesus are explosions of God's power that are meant to color the horizon of the believer's life to assure us that the God who mightily handles major crises and emergencies is adequate for the smaller crises and anxieties that beset us. You see, Father, when we remember what God has done, what God has done in giving us his son, it gives fuel to faith. It dispels worry. It crushes fear. It makes you grateful. And ultimately what remembering does is remembering moves you. It moves you in faith. So how are we to remember, or what are we to remember? Above all else, we are to remember the good news that is ours in Christ, that God loves us. That is what we are to remember. Let me just put it to you in in, in four holidays. We are to remember Christmas, we are to remember Good Friday, we are to remember Easter, and we are to remember Pentecost. Now what are you talking about, Marshall? Here's what I'm talking about. What does Christmas tell us? Christmas tells us that God became one of us, that Jesus, the holy God, became one. He became flesh and blood. He knows your suffering. He knows your temptation. He knows what it is to have a frail, broken body. That's Christmas. But we also remember, we also remember Good Friday, the atonement, where Jesus died for the sins of the world, forgiving you and me. But there's also something else that happened on, on that Friday. Because Jesus was saying, you are enough. You are enough. You don't have to do anymore. You don't have to achieve that resume, that net worth, that business success, those grades. Get into that school. You are enough. I loved you so much that I gave myself for you. That's Good Friday. And then there's Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, when we are reminded because Jesus was raised from the dead that he has power and gives us power over sin and one day over death. What do we remember? We remember these things. And then we remember Pentecost, where God came down. He indwelt his people. Behold, the living God is in you. So what do we remember? We remember what Jesus has done, who he is for us. And then the final question. Well, do we have memorials? Do we have monument stones to help us remember? Why, yes, we do. We first of all have these days, these occasional days that I've just named. Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, Pentecost. But also daily, we have God's word where we pray, we read God's word, and it reminds us of what is true so that we can therefore go forth and live. The monument is prior. We remember, therefore we go forth and live. So there's the occasional, there's the daily, and then, friends, there is the weekly. There is nothing more important on your calendar than the public worship of God on the Lord's Day on Sunday. Being right here where God's word is preached, where God's word is prayed, where God's word is sang, and then ultimately we come to what God has given us, the Lord's Supper. Because in just a moment we will come where God says, taste and see, and he says, do this what? In remembrance of me. And why? So that we can remember and then we can go forth to live lives of faith, service, and love. This is the number one appointment in our calendars week after week, the public worship of God. God has given us a memorial. We come to taste and see. And so, friends, the story, this obscure story about a monument in Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4 is a reminder that we must actively remember so that we might live by faith. As, the, as uh, Tim Keller likes to say, you see, remembering is not just about the ABCs of the gospel, getting started. It's about the A to Z. You never get past it. My campus minister in college used to say, Marshall, have you figured out that you're never going to figure it out? You never stop remembering. We all were prone to wonder. We're all prone to forget. 
And so we must actively remember that we would live in faith to the God who loves us and gave himself and continues to call us to himself. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you know that we are weak and frail and that we are prone to wonder, prone to forget. And therefore, you give us these things to remember just what you've done for us. Not just that we would remember, but that we might be compelled and propelled into a life of faith, service, and love. Would you do that for us this morning? For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.